0: UMGoBlue.com, by fans, for fans, since 1999. Hello, welcome to this edition of the UMGoBlue.com podcast. This is Phil Callahan along with
1: Clint Derringer.
0: And we have a very special podcast today. In honor of the bye week, we will be taking questions from the Twitter community. First up, we have some questions from Paul Shen. First up, what do you make of the third quarter defensive effort against Nebraska?
1: Well, for me, I think it's a little bit more giving credit to Nebraska and their coaching staff for, for seeing where they could exploit uh, Michigan's defense. You know, I we mentioned it on the previous podcast that uh, Nebraska found ways to get their tight end and uh Running back isolated against linebackers in coverage, and then also paired that with misdirection in the backfield, to where it looked like, you know, the most dangerous guy on the field for Nebraska was Adrian Martinez. So he would roll one direction, or or the play would the normal looking play would set up in one direction, and they would leak the tight end or the running back in the other direction. So those linebackers kind of triggered toward Martinez uh, his early movement. And then they hit, uh, hit those, those throwback plays for, for touchdowns. So I think you got to give them credit for that, um, that halftime adjustment. Um, and then the, the counter to the counter, uh, by Mike McDonald and the defensive staff, um, really made a huge difference as well. So they, you know, eventually, uh, were able to, to kind of clamp down on, All of the normal Nebraska offense. Um, it was, it was, they were limited to just those big plays. And, and Mike McDonald was able to do a much better job in the fourth quarter of keeping the ball, you know, putting guys in space with leverage that kept the ball inside and in front of them as opposed to letting them, letting, uh, those receivers get wide and outflank your defense.
0: So I'm going to do something I don't often do. I'm going to give uh, props to Scott Frost, again, not a fan. But I think what we saw was we saw a very distinctive first half uh, plan of attack from Nebraska and then a second half plan of attack and and adjustments at halftime. So, you know, it it was interesting to see that I think in some ways the Michigan defense was lulled into – expecting a certain type of attack in the first half and man in that third quarter it changed and and whatever tendencies they thought they were seeing in the first half um, Nebraska went against and, and took advantage of so again um, I, I thought it was an excellent move and counter move and man to see the Michigan defense struggle the way that it did and and again you know you it's not just the Michigan defense failing you have to give credit to the other team. As we often say, both teams are trying to win, and both teams are really good at what they do. But, man, it was it was sure, uh, if you're watching the, the ebb and, and flow of the game, man, it was all Nebraska in that third quarter. And um, you also have to give credit and recognize that there was a fourth quarter. And the defense did spring back and make adjustments to what Nebraska was trying to do.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think it would be different if you come out from halftime And there are a couple big plays that are schemed up by the other team. Okay. And then all of a sudden, you know, your your defense is trying to overcorrect and you're out of position. Or if you're seeing uh, broken tackles, right? Or if you're seeing your defensive line wear down and get uh, really driven back off the line of scrimmage, we didn't see those things, right? That we we saw some big plays, some coverage busts, uh, things that can be tightened up. And uh you know guys that are that are young guys, especially in that linebacker core, that are on the steep end of their learning curve right now, so uh again I, I'm not saying that it was that it was fun to watch. it certainly wasn't right it was It was pretty stressful watching Nebraska score twenty two points in the third quarter but i I wouldn't hit the panic button yet um I, I I think that you we give it a tip of the cap to that offense and see um if that pattern Continues, You know, it, it has been a trend even back into the Don Brown era where teams usually came out pretty strong in the first quarter against the defense because um, they have a good game plan for for the X's and O's and, and were able to predict in a lot of cases how Don Brown would react. Um, that's less so what we're seeing this year, right? And then you get all your coaches back in front of the players at halftime and kind of scheme it back up for what they're seeing up in the box from the first half. They come out with a pretty good uh, script of plays or, or you know, what, you, how you drew it up on the whiteboard during halftime. They come out and execute that in the third. And then Michigan does better in the even-numbered quarters, right, where the counters to the counters. And, and, and I think that um, the positive for this particular staff and for Mike McDonald is that he has made adjustments on the fly to correct mistakes and and get the personnel matchups that are favorable to Michigan um, and puts his best players, you know, Dax Hill, Aiden Hutchinson, um, those guys in a position to be weapons um, as a counter to the counter. So I would expect that trend to somewhat continue. The goal is to kind of limit the damage in the first and the third quarters.
0: Yeah, and you have to appreciate that it's difficult you know as you said to make adjustments on the fly as you're under fire right because um you know in this case nebraska comes out in the third quarter and you know michigan is watching from up top michigan's watching from the sidelines they're talking to their players what are you seeing from the field and they're gathering data and and, and slowly coming up with or i guess as quickly as you can coming up with a counter to the counter right and like you said you have to look at what happens in the even quarters where they've had time to adjust they've had time to bring in the data and kind of make adjustments so uh, again you know as frustrating as it was to see nebraska score 21 points in the third quarter they didn't score 21 points in the fourth quarter or we'd be talking about a big corn husker victory right so michigan clearly made the adjustments and again it was uh you know, we were white knuckling it there, but but they weren't able to to make some changes. Um, so, next question up, and again, we have a number of questions here. Um, again, from Paul Shen, Sean Hickson, and Jack Coon, um, uh, all about the quarterback position. So, do you think Michigan will do a two quarterback system under McNamara and McCarthy? Meaning that you think? Do you think you're going to see a more even distribution of playing time?
1: Um, Well, I'd start. I'd say that we are seeing somewhat of a two quarterback system. It's clear that uh, the offensive staff and and Harbaugh are are putting McCarthy in uh, early in games to get meaningful snaps, and that uh, JJ McCarthy and his skill set are a key component of the right now the run game plan right that it's clear that uh mccarthy is coming in to uh to be a threat in the quarterback run game to uh to try to keep that backside defensive end honest um when when the running backs are, are hitting between the tackles um they're they're doing some of the quarterback run stuff that shea patterson was successful in uh more in 2018 than 2019 uh they're doing that with mccarthy so as of right now, I would say they are using a two-quarterback system. Um, in terms of specifically, do I think it's going to become a more even distribution? I, I don't think that we'll see a huge uptick in McCarthy's snap count um, unless they're, you know, knock on wood, unless there's an injury, right? So I think we'll continue to see McCarthy um, somewhere between five and ten snaps per game. Um, and what we will see is more diversity in what plays they run when McCarthy comes in. Right now, um, it's like a, it's a, a blinking five alarm fire when McCarthy comes in the game because you know that it's going to be zone read off of Michigan's base play, which has been you know split zone up the middle, and likely McCarthy is going to end up keeping, if not the first time, certainly the second time that they run it. So they're doing that to kind of create create a rhythm and an expectation. At some point, there will be another wrinkle that comes off of that. And I think it's likely to be um, a deep shot down the field where they use that split zone look and McCarthy takes a step or two as if he's running the ball. And then he probably pulls up and, and, and pushes the ball vertically down the field. So um, I don't think that it's going to be a huge increase in the number of snaps but I do think they're going to try to make more impact when JJ comes into the game.
0: So I agree. I, I don't think we're going to see a situation, you know, looking back, uh, you know, historically, I don't think we're going to see a, a drew Henson, Tom Brady, where one comes in for one possession, and the next one comes in for another possession or they swap quarters. Um, the, the question I have is, um, I'm really trying to understand what um, Coach Harbaugh is thinking with J.J. McCarthy, right? Because initially my thought was, okay, he's coming in because he has the big arm, right? And then we've seen him in situations where, oh, he's going to run too. So it's interesting to me because, you know, again, going down the, you know, if you go down the the school thought that, okay, McNamara... Um, is the is the manager, right? He's the guy who is, knows where his swim lane is. He is going to manage the offense and he's not going to have bad turnovers and, and you know, y- you have what you have, right? Um, it seems to me that Harbaugh is kind of breaking McCarthy and saying, well, okay, yeah, you have the big arm. Yes, you can run too. Um, at a certain point, You know, McCarthy is the break glass in case something bad happens to McNamara, but I do understand why people are are wondering at what point. You know, you kind of have the teeter totter, right? One on one side, one on the other. Very clearly, McNamara is getting, uh, you know, the the dominant amount of playing time. Um, As McCarthy kind of proves himself and gets more experience, um, it'll be interesting to me how that, uh, how the playing time balances. I don't expect anything dramatic now, but, you know, or I should say soon, but, but again, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Um, And, and again, it, it's, uh, it's something that you definitely have to watch. And, you know, I, I I've, you know, I, and it's funny cause I've been going around town and, you know, you end up talking to people and, you know, here in, in, in Michigan, Right. You have the Wolverines who are undefeated. You have the Spartans who are undefeated. And you have the Lions, the Detroit Lions in the NFL who haven't won a game. And it seems like everybody's fans are unhappy. And I was talking to one of my friends who's a Michigan fan, and I'm like, You're undefeated. Why are you um, you know, crucifying McNamara? I mean, I understand, you know, uh, you know, Lions fans being unhappy with the Lions but again, the guy's undefeated and, you know, the things are looking pretty well. He's, he's come up big in some games. So I, I think uh, it, it's interesting to, to hear the angst among the fan base on um, a certain percentage pleading and assuming that McCarthy is a foregone conclusion when you have McNamara, who has the team at 6-0. and
1: yeah, we we said this before it bears repeating. There's a lot more that goes into playing quarterback than being able to drop the ball in the bucket from from 50 yards, which McNamara has shown an ability to throw the ball deep, right? I think I think it is clear that McCarthy has the superior arm talent if you were just lining the two up uh in 7 on 7 drills, right? I I think that's fine. Um I think McCarthy would probably perform better uh, in a combine setting. I, I don't think that there's any you know, any doubt about that. But in terms of um, commanding the huddle and reading the defense and what you see and understanding the moving parts and being able to help set protection and understand your pre-snap reads and what the defense is trying to do and where they can be exploited and make some of those calls at the line of screen, Right? There's only one way for J.J. to get good at that, and it's live reps, and it's uh, continuing to learn and, and do that work in practice. And, and Cade's experience is hugely valuable to this team, and his leadership ability and, and ability to read a defense before the snap is um, still the, the foundation of what is working right now in offense. So it's going to stay that way. Um, where Cade has shortcomings right now is that he is not a threat to keep the ball in the run game. So we can see teams doing different, a uh, couple different techniques or strategies to utilize their, their defensive ends or outside linebackers or safeties in the box to crash inside and plug up the inside run game. And it, it looks like McNamara is making a bad read because there's a lot of space out there because the defense does not respect McNamara as a run threat. So the, the answer to that as of right now is that they've gotten more repetitions for McCarthy in the game because he is a legitimate threat to hold, you know, to keep the ball and to run. Right. And that is an immediate impact on the run game right now for this team. The other benefit is you need those snaps for McCarthy because, you know, number one over the long term, McCarthy is your quarterback of the future, certainly, right? He's, he's probably going to compete for the starter's job next season, you know, starting in the spring and going into fall camp. He's going to be competing for the starter spot. And certainly two years from now, you, you would imagine that McCarthy will be the, the full-blown starter and, and, and looking to push towards, you know, Uh, playing championship football. So getting him the experience right now is valuable in the long term. In the short term, this is also Harbaugh trying to learn some lessons from the past where Michigan played really well, right? I'm thinking of the 2016 team that was rolling along and then Wilton Spate hurt his shoulder in Iowa and and Michigan gets clipped and that offense never really – could get back up off the ground. Right. And then Spate's back in 2017. Gets hurt against Purdue in the fourth game of the season. And then O'Corn isn't uh, very efficient. Gets dinged up a little bit. Peters comes in. Does okay that he's hurt. O'Corn's back in there. The lack of experience or competence by the backup quarterback. Has been a an Achilles heel for previous versions of Harbaugh's teams. So. It, to me, what I see is uh, a commitment to getting the backup ready to go because experience has told us that your starter is going to have to come out of a game at some point in the future and you want your backup to be able to go in there and produce. And it's a luxury for Michigan right now to have uh, somebody as talented as J.J. McCarthy uh, as the backup. Right? There would be some drop-off in, in game management and reading of a defense, but we know that the talent is there and that there is already a, a core um, package of the offense that's built for J.J. McCarthy. So this offense is diversifying, right, and, and not putting all their eggs in one basket because we know as October turns to November, at some point McCarthy is going to have to play a full series um, for this team in a key game. I mean, just look at what happened to Penn State when Sean Clifford had to come out of the game in Iowa, right? They they were up 17-3, to I think, at the time, and uh, just couldn't hold on and ended up dropping one in Kinnick because the backup quarterback um, could not execute the game plan that was built around Sean Clifford. So all of those things work together, right? What we're doing is kind of a slow build, and there's lots of uh, angles to it, but I, I don't expect McCarthy to just slowly take over the, the job from McNamara this season, you know, barring injury.
0: The bigger question I have as opposed to, you know, splitting playing time is when are we going to see them both on the field at the same time? And what kind of options will we see there? Um, you know, Harbaugh has shown that in past seasons. And I think uh there has to be some plays in the package about uh that we'll probably see um, possibly against Michigan State or uh maybe something's being held back for Ohio State. So I'm I'm interested to see what kind of uh things Harbaugh can spin up and Josh Gaddish can think up with both of those guys being able to throw and especially with JJ McCarthy being able to able to run and throw. You know the the question I have about McCarthy versus McNamara or McNamara versus McCarthy, depending on which side of the fence you're sitting is we definitely see McNamara being given reps to dial in the passing game and and he's just a little bit off, right and and I, I don't think it's a criticism of him to acknowledge that he ha- he hasn't exactly clicked. Completely, um, and, and part of that is, again, you're still struggling with the loss of Ronnie Bell. So I think the question I have is um, how small is that gap and how long will it take for McNamara to be able to hit the guys in stride when he has those opportunities? And I think the only way that we see a flip-flop and uh, um, McCarthy possibly taking over the position is that if over the next, you know, we like, I like to break up the season in quarters in the next quarter season, the next three games, if, if after those three games, McNamara is still not clicking on the passing game, I think that may open up an opportunity for McCarthy, but I don't think we're there yet. And again, I'm not trying, you know, we talk about, there are a lot of different things that a quarterback needs to do. Um, I'm not throwing McCarthy under a bus. We just haven't seen it yet. and, and, you know, there's a certain extent you can watch from the sidelines, you can watch all the tape you want, but you're only going to get that from reps, as you said.
1: Yeah, that's, that's definitely true. And your, your point about Cade being given the opportunity to throw um, more in the most recent games is, is also significant. It's clear that the, the coaching staff trusts him to, to make decisions in the passing game and, and know, knows that he has the ability to, to deliver the ball. And where we've seen McNamara miss, um, to my eye, you know, some, you know, certainly not an expert. Um, but to my eye, there, there's been um, some breakdowns in fundamentals when the timing isn't, uh, isn't exactly right. So when, uh, you know, when the protection, um, presents something, uh, that Kate isn't comfortable with, not necessarily the protection has been really good, but, um, he he isn't quite comfortable to step up into the pocket as of right now when the when the protection is there in front of him, um, and I think part of that is the the fact that he doesn't see over the line very well. He tends to get his feet moving and, and start to break outside of the pocket um, when when his read isn't there. Right, so when he's able to catch the snap, set his feet, throw the ball on rhythm he's he's absolutely fine right but you know every division 1 quarterback or power 5 quarterback it, that's probably true for them right it's when things start to break down and he gets a little bit off of that non-standard rhythm that uh, his fundamentals break down and that's when he gets a little bit off target so the good news is that is something, that's exactly the type of stuff that you would spend the bye week working on with your quarterback coach and, and a head coach who played the position in the NFL, right? These are the types of things that are coachable and fixable. You know, this is not, he doesn't have any any issues right now that I see that are not fixable. Um, but at the same time, he, he does need to fix them because we, we need him to be accurate um, on those big play opportunities, because the the margin for error shrinks in the second half of the season. So, um, there are issues. Uh, you know, he brings more to the table and positive than negative, in my opinion. You know, but uh, he does need to to keep improving, just like everybody else on the team. And uh, I do expect that to happen. I still think that he's got a little bit of room between where he is and his ceiling. I think that he can still take one more step forward as a quarterback, and we can see it this season.
0: You know, another thought on the McCarthy versus McNamara. Everyone is excited about McCarthy's arm, but you and I were both excited about Joe Milton's arm, right? We talked before last season about some of the throws he had made in warm-ups and some of the things we noticed, and again, not to – this joe milton who has transferred to tennessee but again um having a big arm wasn't enough last year and you know there are other things you need to bring you need to bring to the table um so clint the question i have is this okay and i don't know the answer to this and and that's why i want to put it to you at some point this year imagine that you know, Michigan is down two or three scores in the fourth quarter, and you need to lean on the passing game. Right now, I don't know um, if I want McNamara or McCarthy in that situation. And I think that's the question that Michigan is going to have to have an answer or or a confidence for. I mean, we would love to assume that Michigan will never be down and that you know they will be leading every game, but things happen. And, you know, if you're faced with a situation where you need to lean more on the passing game and and um, not just the passing game, but a, a quick score, like a long passing game, I don't know if I have the confidence in McNamara from what I've seen so far. He's a work in progress. It's not done yet. But I need to see over the next quarter season, that's what I need to see. I need to have confidence that if we need to go to the passing game, that he has the accuracy and the arm strength, you know. I don't need him to throw an eighty-yard pass, but I need to know that he can throw the the forty, the thirty to forty-yard pass consistently to to drive the the team downfield.
1: Well, we we talked about this um, a couple of years ago when Patterson got uh, inaccurate on some of his deep balls, and, and to, to me, again, from the quarterback position, when you're when you're missing on the deep ball, whether you're overthrowing the guy or under the guy, it's much less about um, your arm strength than it is about timing, right? And, and throwing with anticipation. So what we need Cade to do to improve on those, right, is to let the ball go maybe just a, a heartbeat or two sooner than what he's doing, right? Then then he's got to be able to anticipate um, what uh, a receiver who is going to be open and behind the defense looks like before that guy is actually behind the defense and, and has a step or two, right? Because every time, uh, every time he pats the ball in the pocket or kind of hitches his feet, right? that's two or three full speed steps for that receiver getting further and further away. So I think a couple of the balls that have been underthrown, it's not about his arm or his arm strength. Uh, or his placement as much as it is the timing, right? So if, you, if we go back, and maybe this is an exercise that you and I can do, if we go back to find some of those uh, deep passes that were really great and, and then compare them to some of the deep passes that were not great, I would imagine that you'll see that he holds the ball for a split second longer, and you, you would see in his footwork probably one extra step to kind of gather himself um, and that's what, what makes the difference. And then conversely, right, he's a beat early when he overthrows a guy, right? You threw it just a, a little bit too early, typically. I'm thinking of the, the ball to uh, Mike Saner still. That was a great play, but Saner still had to lay out, right? So I, I would be interested to see, go back and look at the footwork and the timing of his release, and either he, he was a heartbeat early letting that go or um, just needed to put a, a touch more air under it to let samer still run underneath it. So again, this is not a talent issue, right? These are coachable things. These are coachable things that come with repetition, and you, you mentioned it also. When Cade was, was kind of announced as the starter in spring ball, I'm sure he took – his number one receiver and went out and hit the whole route tree all summer and worked and worked and worked on these timing, uh, routes and, and placement and, and can probably throw the ball in his sleep to Ronnie Bell if Ronnie Bell were healthy, right? And then he's probably got a certain amount of work in with Cornelius Johnson and it looked like he was gaining a, a rapport on the field with Roman Wilson, who obviously didn't play uh, against Nebraska. So these things take, take time and repetition. And, and that's not an excuse to say that it's it's okay or that it, it's good enough because it's not. It, it, what I'm saying is that I believe, knowing what kind of work ethic, you know, Cade McNamara is reputed to have, that these things will improve over the next two to three weeks. And it's certainly something that they can hammer home uh, over the bye week, right, getting the timing uh, of his release down and, and dial in the, the spot placement on these uh, – Stutter and go routes that that push the ball down the field. He's going to get back to being accurate like he was in that in that Northern Illinois game, and, and uh, even Western when he had Ronnie Bell um, in the first half. So I am not concerned if uh, in that hypothetical situation where we need to throw the ball, I'm still putting Cade McNamara out there. You know his his first appearance last year. He was down seventeen coming into the Rutgers game, and brought that team back from a three score deficit with his arm and they win in three overtimes. So which guy do you want to do it? The guy that's already done it once on the road is, is for me. Right. So that's still a lot of room for growth. This is not a, you know, he's not impervious to criticism, but uh, from what I've seen, it's not a talent issue. Just needs to continue working and getting better. Just like everybody else.
0: All right. Next topic up. So, red zone scoring. Questions about that from Paul Shen and Jack Kuhn. So, this is something you and I have addressed and, you know, continues to be an issue with, um, you know, when I was watching the Michigan-Nebraska game, it was in that first half, you got to convert the touchdown, right? And you had a couple plays that could have gone either way under review You had the play where McNamara, you know, tripped and um, was down. But, you know, things happen. You need to be able to convert in the red zone. As much as Michigan has scored in some early season games, we have seen the stall. Um, You know, it's almost first and goal short. You almost cringe a little bit. And I think that... It's definitely something Michigan is going to have to improve on. What's your take on what we've seen this season so far?
1: Yeah, I think th- this is a really, really astute observation from from uh, from the, the listener who asked the question, right? And it's a reason. It's one of the five factors that goes into Connolly's uh, SP Plus analysis, and it's why it's one of the things that we track and then talk about on a consistent basis. So um, the question kind of sparked, you know, some some interest for me certainly. So I wanted to go look and see historically, you know, kind of how Michigan has done uh, scoring um, when they get a first down across the uh, the opponent's forty yard line, right? So the the data that I have goes back to twenty sixteen, and here are the numbers, you know, over time for points scored on trips to, uh, inside the forty with with garbage time taken out. So the twenty sixteen has the best numbers 4.91 17 has the worst number at 4.23 so the the range of all of these numbers is is about 0.7 right so it's a pretty tight grouping and then 2018 was a little bit better than 17 426 2019 was 477 2020 was 485 and then this year is 484 so this team right now is scoring inside the, you know cashing in those scoring opportunities at about the same rate as as previous teams, but I think that we would much rather see that closer to five or even above five if possible. So in order to see why it feels like a challenge this year when when I think Josh Gaddis you know w- Josh Gaddis took over in 2019 and scoring inside the 40 went up from four point two to four point eight right? 4.26 to 4.77. It's one of Gaddis's strengths is that he immediately helped us improve scoring um, when they got close to the end zone. So when I split the games between non-conference games and Big Ten, that's where we see what what feels like a problem right now. The non-conference games, Michigan cashed in at five and a half points per trip, And in the Big Ten games right now, Rutgers um, at Wisconsin and uh, at Nebraska, they're only scoring at a 4.37 clip uh, on those scoring opportunities. So it is an issue right now. It is an opportunity to to get better. But the big, you know, the big but is that I think Gaddis is still scheming up points and touchdowns. And right now, most of the issues have been execution-based. So let's use the Nebraska game to highlight it. And, you know, they had a couple touchdowns taken out by review, right? Haskins was in the end zone, clearly in the end zone, but found out McNamara's knee touched the ground before the handoff and all that. But the play that really should have been the touchdown on, on two fronts was the pass that Dalen Baldwin couldn't hold on to. So Dalen Baldwin gets two hands on the ball, and the defensive back makes a really great play and rakes it out of there. And we don't get a touchdown on, on first down from about the five, I think. And this is after, I believe, this is after Seymour Still's circus catch. right? Now, that play, I, I, I highlight because a lot of folks, you know, immediately saw Baldwin, two hands on the ball, got to catch it. Right. But watch McNamara on that play. He's like fading to the left sideline, trying to throw the ball. Back to the right, which is like, is, uh, you know, Aaron Rodgers, Patrick Mahomes, you know, a handful of guys maybe that can run left and throw right. And that's it, right? So he actually pulls the ball back to the left where the corner is, right? If he were to get that ball out in front of his receiver to the right, further to the right of the receiver, then Baldwin catches that uncontested if it was out in front of him as opposed to he didn't have to throw it right over top of his head. And again, it wasn't his arm that made a miss. It was his feet. He was, he was pulling left for, for no reason that I could see. So those execution things need to sharpen up. I would be concerned if we were just slamming our head into a wall and not gaining any ground. But Michigan's been very successful running the ball um, with their zone scheme and power schemes. They've done well off of play action. They just need to execute a little bit more cleanly. And I think more of those field goals turn into touchdowns. But uh, it, it is clear that it's a problem right now. I expect it to get cleaned up over the bye week. And we'll see. Um, Northwestern's going to make any offense look better, I think. You know, But we'll see in the bigger games, starting probably with, with the Michigan State game on October 30th.
0: So I think what we've seen is the Michigan offense has been much more effective running the ball when the RPO is in play, right? When the few times that stick in my mind where the offense has got stalled at short and goal, it's been a very clear running situation. And I want to see them convert that. But again, as you said, there's been, t- there's been other options or other potential plays that could have converted to touchdowns. And in the end, what's important is the score to the touchdown, right? So we've talked a lot about Um, how there have been small imperfections in McNamara's game that can be coached up and and resolved, hopefully. One of the questions we have is, is it it premature to consider that McNamara might leave for the NFL after this season? Um, So, um, you know, my thought on that is, if he believes that he will lose the job next year, to McCarthy. That may drive him to leave um you know that may per, that may drive him to leave, right? Because you don't want to lose your starting position. You know, in that way. Also, you know, at a certain point coach Harbaugh is going to have to consider after this season, you know, one of the big things that coaches need to consider is that you know, McCarthy could leave right? You have the options with the transfer portal. So I I think there are a lot of questions on what may happen after this season. And, you know, there's a lot of seasons still to play. You know, we're only halfway through, but how do you see that question and the potential for one or the other to leave?
1: Um, Well, for the NFL, I think it is, I, I would say, to answer the question directly, I would say it is premature to consider McNamara leaving for the NFL. I, I just don't think that he is executing cleanly enough right now that he would be maximizing his opportunity, right? Unless he um, makes a huge leap from where he's at right now as a solid game manager for uh, a Big Ten team to really being uh, a lethal on these downfield shots and also precise running these RPOs, uh, if there's a flip where all of a sudden he's he's kind of uh, dominant over the last six games, then then I would revisit that question. But until we saw that, I would say it's premature to think that he would leave for the NFL because I, I don't think that he would be maximizing his potential. He can still get better and, and therefore improve his draft stock for him specifically. The question or the point that you raised about um, the dynamic of both quarterbacks and what do you do um, after this season and, and prepping for the 22 season um, is is a whole other conversation, right? So there are enough variables there that it's hard to predict exactly what would happen. Anybody that is telling you with certainty what would happen, um, I, I would say that they're overstating their, their, their level of understanding of the situation. You know, the only people that know, are really the two quarterbacks and and maybe the position coach and the head coach. Um, But even they would tell you right now that they're focused all in on on 21. So the rest of us that are kind of uh, doing conjecture work on 22, right, your guess is as good as mine and vice versa. So um, the transfer portal is is a legitimate thing that that has to be measured, right, from Harbaugh's – what we've seen of Harbaugh – is those guys are going to compete for the starting job next year, starting in the spring, right? It's going to be Cade in the driver's seat, and the the onus is going to be on McCarthy to to catch him, right? If if McCarthy can can develop an understanding of the offense and and read defenses as, as cleanly as Cade can, but still execute, um, you know, with uh, with a stronger arm, then then if he's the better quarterback, Harbaugh's going to, going to put him into the starting role. And then the question is: Whoever doesn't win this quarterback competition going into next year, you know, how do you how do you talk to that kid and, and give him the best opportunity to be successful? Is being the backup um, still at Michigan the best chance for him to be successful, or, or are they going to transfer um, based on what opportunity is there? You know, outside of, of of Ann Arbor, you know, those those questions are very very personal. Um, for every kid, you know, if McCarthy were to win the job, I think it would be likely that McNamara would, would probably transfer somewhere else to be the starter. Like that would make a lot of sense. But, uh, Jalen Hurts at, at Alabama didn't transfer when Tua took the job and and ended up coming in as a backup and, and helping lead that team and, and finish off a national title run. I'm not saying, I'm not predicting that for 2022. But what I'm saying is that he stayed an extra year as a backup and then transferred as a grad transfer and and was successful at Oklahoma. So the dynamics of who leaves and when has a lot of variables to it. And I do think that there's a chance both guys are still on the roster uh, as we get to fall of next year. But it would not be it would not be a major shock if whoever does not win that quarterback competition um, tries to pursue an opportunity somewhere else, and that you know that's perfectly reasonable for somebody to do that.
0: I never criticize a guy who leaves for a better opportunity. I think you need to make the best decision for you, right? And I and you and I have talked about that um, the shift to offer more benefits, you know, whether it's in um, name image likeness or whether it's the transfer portal, more advantages for players is a good thing. But I keep coming back to, you know, the those who stay will be champions. Um, you know, uh, Brian Greasy almost left before winning a national championship for Michigan. You know, the story is out there, you know, it, it's been you know, he talked about, he was going to go be a banker. Right. And there was no guarantee that he was going to come back and be the starter. There was no guarantee that Michigan was going to win a national championship and, you know, came back, won a national championship, had a, a, uh, you know, went to the NFL and, uh, you know, built a career off of that. You know, we could also say the same thing about Tom Brady. Tom Brady talked about transferring. Okay. That story is out there. And, you know, the story goes, he went to talk to uh, Lloyd Carr, and Lloyd Carr said, I'll sign the papers, right? And Tom Brady buckled down and even had to fight, even in a senior season, for playing time with Drew Henson, right? So, again, players need to make the best choice for them, but there are many examples of staying and battling um, has can have its rewards. So, definitely... Well, you know, we have a lot of this season to see, but the one thing that I, I think you can almost bank on is that what we've seen under Jim Harbaugh is that there are opportunities for players who are not necessarily the starters to win the starting position or have opportunities thrust upon them due to injuries. So again, uh, you know, lots of season to play, but Definitely a, a lot for people to consider um, when you think about leaving the team and 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 moving to different opportunities. So, um, so um, some other questions we have here um, from Vanadium: um, How does Michigan create more turnovers? Iowa's been very successful this year. Um, what do you think about that one, Clint?
1: Well, th- turnovers are one of the things that are. The most random, statistically, um, the least predictable um, component of what you know what you would look at analytically and what's going on. So what Iowa do what Iowa is doing is unreal, and it's it's not likely to stay um, at that pace for an entire season, right? There's going to be a regression to the mean where Iowa's not going to be forcing something like four and a half turnovers per game, right and multiple uh multiple times they've taken those turnovers back for a score, a defensive score. So that that's not sustainable. It's not going to continue to happen and then the vice you know the the flip of that is also true. I right? think of the 2019 season and the fumbleitis that Michigan had in the first four games and how awful that was. They ended up almost exactly the same in terms of turnover rate at the end of 19 as they have been for all of Harbaugh's tenure. So they came in a huge bunch early in the season, and then that team really buckled down and took care of the football through the middle of the season and late into the season and ended up right around their their average. So turnovers, water tends to find find its level. Um, with that said, what can they do to create more turnovers? And that is is obviously the continuing emergence of guys like David Ojabo, uh, Christopher Hinton, Mozzie Smith, Um, Mike Morris, uh, those guys on the defensive line that are not named Aiden Hutchinson. So Aiden Hutchinson is going to do what he does, and teams are going to bend over backwards and send multiple guys towards 97 to try to make sure that he doesn't beat you. So any production that we get out of Aiden Hutchinson is going to be superhuman effort, and and there will be some, but it's not going to be enough to shift your 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 a difference in creating turnovers for the season. So what we need to have happen is more plays like Dax Hill on that nickel blitz when you hit Graham Mertz um, that uh, ended up hurting Mertz and he didn't play the rest of the game. That's the type of play that could become a fumble and, and a turnover, right? And it, it, in in that case, it was a big sack on third down and they punted. But if there was a way that that ball gets jarred loose right that that's a small difference between those two realities you know uh David Ojavo stripped at the ball um with Adrian Martinez, I believe this last game with two hands right i mean he he beats the tackle underneath and two hands swipes at the at the ball and it doesn't come out right and He ends up getting the sack um but the fact that that ball didn't come out is uh is you know just bad luck, and then the other. Um, thing that I think right now Michigan's on the the wrong end of is there have been some interceptions that have gone right through the hands of a couple of our defensive backs. And at some point you'll see that those um, become deflections and somebody else catches the ball or those defensive backs will come down with some of those interceptions. So I think just in terms of averages, they're going to create more turnovers, right? Water tends to find its level, but also keep an eye up front And those guys that are being used um, that are not Aiden Hutchinson, if those guys are starting to get cleaner and cleaner hits on the opposing quarterback, creating havoc, then that's the environment that tends to create turnovers.
0: So uh, we had a question from Michael Letcher and he asked about the secondary. And I think it's a good time to, to mention that because, you know, every time I see a defensive back miss an interception that goes through his hands, I'm reminded that in many cases, if defensive backs were better at catching the ball, they'd be, they'd be receivers. Right. So um, I do think that, you know, what can Michigan do to get better, to get more turnovers? I think that is a natural evolution of as defensive backs, learn their position to read the keys and and as you said part of it is is luck right but part of it too is being able to understand to be in the right place at the right time and you know i i i really want turnovers at the time that we need them and we got that against Nebraska right and and it, and it's the timing was perfect and like you said there was the one play the two-handed swipe how do you miss the ball well, you know, again, it's football. That happens, right? You you mm-hmm. get the turnovers when you don't deserve them and you don't get them when, when you think that you should. So um, I think that um, from what I'm seeing technique-wise, uh, the defense is doing what they, what they need to do when they get close to the ball. They are driving. They are hitting. They are striking the ball. Um, the only thing that's going to change is the defensive backs possibly being in a little better position and, and maybe – you know, closing on some of those catches. But uh, again, like you said, water finds its level. And from what I'm seeing technique-wise, they're doing what they need to do. Um, And I think at a certain point, you keep doing what you need to do and good things are going to happen. And, um, you know, for Michigan to be undefeated at this point and not have more turnovers, uh, you know, again, recovering more turnovers is is definitely a good thing. And I I think that we're going to, Um, see that balance out and and see um, more good things happen for the defense as we move into the second half of the season
1: yeah I I expect there's going to be an uptick Um, I think that they will create more turnovers in the second half of the season than they had in the first half of the season
0: all right so next question up um is there a way that uh, how can the Michigan offense find more ways to get Blake Corum in space? And this was from unique elite sneaks. So um, how do you think Josh Gattis can dial something up to get Blake Corum more, you know, the uh, ubiquitous speed in space that we had seen in some past seasons, especially for Blake Corum?
1: Yeah. So there's a couple things. That, that could be done, and some things that obviously he's already doing. Um, one thing that he's done uh, the last two weeks, I believe, but certainly in the Nebraska game, is they're lining up uh, Corum in the slot, and they've also put Donovan Edwards out there in the slot. And based on how the defense is is utilizing that nickel player, think of the position like uh, like Daxton Hill um, for our defense you know these other players have this hybrid space player these other teams have this hybrid space player that would be lined up over that slot guy and that that guy is typically a really great athlete and typically one of your best players so if he's covered he's covered but when they send that guy on the blitz right typically what you want to do is attack the blitz right so if uh, if it was our offense playing against our defense right and you put Corum in the slot and Dax Hill's covering him, and McDonald sends Dax on a blitz, what you would want to do is have a, a, a hot route or something very short right there that you get the ball immediately to Blake Corum because somebody is rotating over. He's not wide open. Somebody's rotating over to cover for that blitzer, right? But that now he's got the ball in space past the line of scrimmage, and the guy that is responsible for him is, is rushing over to try to get him and is not necessarily breaking down in a great tackling position, right? So that's something that they're doing right now and that they're going to continue trying to leverage that um, based on tendencies that they see from the defenses that that they play. Uh, another way that they could scheme him into some space that, that we haven't seen yet but is certainly possible is you could have both of the running backs, um, Blake Corum and Hassan Haskins, uh, in the backfield, right, and have the uh, the handoff uh, read to Haskins with Corum doing kind of that uh, halfback swing route. So if you remember, I think it was the first game of the season against Western, but maybe it was against Washington, that Corum took a swing pass and went untouched about 30-yard or maybe a 29-yard touchdown pass. Um, so think of that route and that concept, but pair it with the threat of uh, Hassan Haskins running uh, between the tackles, right? So the guy that's responsible, right, on the edge, that outside linebacker or nickel player, he has to decide if he's going to crash down and try to help on tackling Haskins, you know, in the B or the C gap, or if he's going to stay wide with Coram out on that swing route. So concepts like that, Right, And and maybe not exactly as I'm describing it here, but using Corum behind the line of scrimmage, stretching the defense horizontally while somebody else is threatening up the middle, that's another another opportunity to scheme Corum uh, into space. And then the last thing that they're doing that I think is really interesting is, is what's called a bash play, where they're not blocking a defensive end. When they see a guy... Uh, playing defensive end, that's just crashing down and, and really helping us snuff out our inside runs. They're handing it to Blake Corum around the outside, and they're not even blocking the end. So the, the tight end that's right there by the defensive end is releasing past him and going and blocking a linebacker. And these ends are taking themselves out of the play by squeezing down a step or two, trying to help on that inside run game. And meanwhile, Corum is, is running kind of an outside zone, uh, you know, out wide, usually between the hash and the numbers. And this is the play. If you want to see what I'm talking about, go back and watch the last touchdown that Corum scores against Nebraska. It was a bash play. They don't block the end on the play side at all. The tight end leaves them alone, goes up to the linebacker and blocks the linebacker. And Corum makes one cut and nobody even laid a finger on him. So that right now has been one of the most successful ways that they've gotten Quorum into space. But there, there are other ways, and uh, Josh Gaddis uh, is certainly more uh, more versed in how to do it than I am. But those, those are the types that I've seen uh, Gaddis do and, and what, what he could do, and, and obviously there are umpteen million more ways that he could do it. But that's what I would keep my eye out for, for Quorum in space.
0: So I think that Gaddis has the luxury right now of Haskins and Corum both doing really well differently, right? They're both running the ball and they've had success different ways. And I think that, you know, I've said this before, in, in past seasons, if you had one of the other, you'd be you'd be pleased, right? You'd be happy. Well right now you have both, right? you know, boom and zoom, doing different things, being successful. And I think that I'm going, I'm expecting to see both of them used differently over the next six games. I think that what we've seen and, you know, I, I'm real big on splitting the season in quarters, right? We have seen, you know, I would say the first quarter of the season was owned by Corum, you know, running the ball in, in, in some unique ways the second quarter of the season has been Haskins. And I think this next quarter, we're going to see them mixed and matched in all kinds of very cool ways. Um, you know, and, and I would guess that in this bye week, um, you know, Josh Gaddis is scheming up some some very cool ways that we're going to see, um, you know, primarily against Michigan State. And they may even... Be holding some of these plays out for Ohio State. So, so, Clint, let me ask you a question. What percentage of the playbook do you think we've seen halfway through the season?
1: Maybe 40, 40%, you know, up, you know, maybe half of it. Um, the, the, the running game that we've seen is actually very, very, very nuanced, right? They're doing, they're taking one or two Concepts on the inside run game, and doing them from number one, all of their different formations, right, which changes the defensive alignment and changes your angles. But also doing the same concept, but with different people switching roles, right. So sometimes the the backside guard and tackle are pulling. Sometimes it's the 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 center and the backside tackle, right. Sometimes it's the frontside guard on a different you know concept. So. A lot of the plays look very similar with the quarterback handing to the running back and the running back heading toward, you know, kind of the four hole or the B gap. Um, but the nuance is really in what's happening differently within the line. I don't think that we've seen the full, uh, spectrum of all of the different passing tags and RPOs that Gaddis can put on top of the run game. I still think he was using the beginning of the season to establish a a run first identity uh, inside and outside, right? Making teams kind of respect um, Michigan's ability to run the ball um, in any direction inside or outside behind their entire offensive line Um, and that balance. And I expect to see Gaddis use the passing game and the RPOs more um, mostly because McNamara, isn't going to use his legs to threaten the backside defensive end. So I think they will transition more to reading linebackers and safeties and trying to throw the ball in um, on some slants and and other inside routes behind those linebackers. So it it might look like play action. um, But in reality, what we're we're going to be asking Cade to do is reading linebackers and safeties and, and, and hitting some some of those slot guys uh, on the inside of the field. So I think there's a lot more to come. I'm certain that we have not seen much more than half of of the playbook, even of what we will see from for this season.
0: So I think you know it's easy to say half because we're halfway through, right? And and that I think that's pretty reasonable. We've seen a pretty good variety. What I'm interested in is how much more they'll be adding that they didn't anticipate prior to the season. Because what I'm surprised at is you have both Haskins and Coram both doing very well, right, in different ways. And I'm not sure you could have predicted that prior to the season, right? So you have, here's our playbook going in, okay, And then you also have both McNamara and McCarthy kind of bringing different things. So I don't know. You could have anticipated that prior to the season, right? So you have your playbook Mm -hmm. on, well, okay. In a reasonable world. And I don't want to say a perfect world because you never have a perfect world. You have your reasonable playbook, right? Of, wow, we'd like to, we'd like to introduce the, you know, we want to, we want to have the running game, right? Michigan said, we are going to run the ball this year. And I think, we kind of said, yeah, sure you are. Let's see it. Well, they have. And not only have they been running the ball, but they've been running it with two different backs who both bring different things. Right. So what I'm interested in is, and, you know, and we're not going to know this, right. We, you know, hope maybe we can have this, discu- this discussion with the coaches after the season, but I'd be really interested in what plays are they putting in the playbook based on, the unique capabilities that this team has right now and I think that's that's the question that I have is that you know I'm sitting here and thinking man what what would you do you know I I mentioned previously that you're gonna I think you're gonna have a formations where you have both McNamara and McCarthy in right and you already have formations where you have Coram and Haskins in well you know when you look at their unique talents and what they've shown, what kind of things can you dial up? And I think that's, you know, man, uh, here we are in a bye week, and I'm wondering what kind of things that Josh Gaddis and and Coach Harbaugh are are writing on whiteboards and thinking, you know, we could do this, we could do that. I'm interested in that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's – it's endless, right, and you can – you can draw up a million plays, certainly. And they're all related and they're all they're all great, certainly, but you only get about it's somewhere between sixty and, and seventy, sometimes seventy five plays in a game, right? And and you really have to make sure that you're you're leaning on what you do well, right? And and then that there is a that there's a logical cadence and, and, and build up to, to what you're doing and anticipating how how the other team's going to adjust and being ready to um, to hurt them when they adjust to what you're doing well so we're the philosophy of what this team does is going to stay pretty much the same for the remainder of the season right they're gonna they're gonna want to establish uh, that they can run the ball inside and outside right or left and and, and see how the defense first tries to stop the run whether they're playing games with their defensive ends and outside linebackers, or whether they're bringing safeties up into the box. And then that decision by the defensive staff will help um, determine, right, exactly which direction Gattis goes. So he's got to kind of – he's got to have – his plan A is always going to be his plan A, right, but plan B, C, and D all are dependent on how that defense is going to try to stop what Michigan does best.
0: All right, next question's up. We have a question from Eric Pazawilko and a related question from Rob Jablonski, both about Michigan State. I want to work on beating Michigan State by 50 and just question about beating Michigan State. I think, I think uh, I'd think i be happy with beating Michigan State. I'd be really happy to beat him by 50. So, Clint, um, you know, we don't want to look north we we can't really overlook northwestern you know, you can't overlook anybody but northwestern is is definitely not having a vintage northwestern year um, you know assuming that michigan can get by northwestern how do you think they are working or will be targeting to beat game planning to beat michigan state this season which is particularly important after you know the debacle at michigan stadium last year
1: yeah, so I, I think the the importance of that game was huge, even in the preseason, because of what happened last year, right? And now, pretty much unforeseen to anybody on either side of the rivalry, you know, both teams are looking at really, you know, being ranked, maybe being ranked inside the top ten when when that game happens, right? And and this week, Michigan State plays, and Michigan has a bye. Next week, Michigan plays and Michigan State has a bye. So both teams are going to be about as well-rested as they could be and as healthy as they could be. So it's really gearing up towards being an an epic game. So, of course, you know, it's natural that folks would be asking about, okay, so how, what, and and kind of turning the page and looking forward at the next major challenge. and That is certainly one of them. So what I would say that the number one thing that Michigan needs to do to prepare to beat Michigan State is to execute cleanly and play a solid game against Northwestern. Northwestern has been bad against the run. They have been, you know, struggling to, to score points uh, against Big Ten teams. So if Michigan can execute their plan A, right, their game plan and beat them with pretty much what they want to do, running the ball with Haskins and Corum, and taking a couple deep shots when, um, when Northwestern brings extra guys into the box. If we can make this Northwestern game look a lot like those uh, non-conference games looked, then I think that goes a long way toward beating Michigan State, and here's why. But right now in the bye week, you've got all of your support staff self-scouting, number one, right? What what does Michigan need to improve on? And then number two, scouting your future opponents. Right. So there's a there's a number of assistants and analysts and, and assistant coaches right now working on this Michigan State game plan. And what you want to be able to do ideally is not show much of your Michigan State game plan against Northwestern. So You have to, it's a very fine line to walk to where you're going to want to keep the team focused on the task at hand and beating Northwestern and not thinking about Michigan State, but at the same time, create a plan that does not show Michigan State anything that you plan to do um, against what what they're going to do against you, right? And, And your counters to the counter, so to speak. Ideally, you would be able to keep a lot of that uh, under wraps and be able to beat Northwestern um, with pretty much your base defense and your 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 core package of offensive plays. so that that's that's what's going to go the longest way toward beating Michigan state. and then uh, once you're actually in the game, I think defensively, you have to be able to limit big plays. Right now, those guys are living on Kenneth Walker 90-yard runs and Jalen Naylor and Jordan Reed uh, outside, Jaden Reed, excuse me, um, deep down the field, down the sidelines, right? So Michigan's defense has to be able to avoid those big plays and make Michigan State execute um, down the field, right? So a bend-but-don't-break style of game against Michigan State will be enough to win if they can do it. But they have to avoid giving up those those huge explosive plays, 40-plus yards, um, long touchdown runs, long touchdown passes. If they eliminate those, I don't think Michigan State can sustain their offense um, consistently enough to to outscore Michigan.
0: So I think the goal for the Northwestern game should be to assume that Cade's going to play the first half, and you know, as counterintuitive as this may be, you don't want to look like you're running the score up. But I think that you have to use the Northwestern game, the first half, to work out the kinks between McNamara and his and his wide receivers. I think you have to um, go for the big plays, and um, you know, again, we're assuming Michigan's going to win. And I I think that, um, you know, this is one of those cases where it's not a sportsman's unsportsmanlike thing to be trying to run the score up because you need to work out the kinks in the in the in the in the passing game. Right. Um, So the goal is to work those kinks out to get your starters out as quickly as possible um, after the first half ends and to be healthy, to stay healthy right? You know, you brought up a a good point about Michigan State. Um, In in the games I've seen, in the clips I've seen, they do live by the big play. And I think the Michigan defense needs to make them earn whatever points they get the hard way, right? You can't be giving up big plays. You you always say, you know, big plays are crucial. But I, I think that what I have not seen Michigan State do often this season is is long drives down the field, you know, 10, 15, 20 plays. I think if they're going to score, you need to make them earn it and not, like you said, do the bend, not break. And, um, you know, I think that if you get into a game where you want to get into a game where I think the Michigan offense has shown that it can do that and it can ground up a, a defense and and wear them out so i think that that that's what they need to do but again first things first take take care of northwestern um so last question of of the podcast here from bonds so what's the osu game plan right and we have we have five games before that happens but you know i think that one of the things that coach harbaugh talked about in the off season. Was prioritizing Ohio State. Um, I certainly hope that uh, you know we've been doing that, and it's not too much of a prior of a of a difference that we're prioritizing. But you know, as you said, one of the things that the staff is doing in the bye week is self scouting and also doing scouting on opponents. So, Clint, again, a, a, you know, five games before Ohio State's up. But, again, if, if you want to pop out a, and look at the 50,000-foot view, what kind of things that Michigan is doing right now is helping them prepare to um, fight Ohio State and possibly get that, that Buckeye off their back?
1: Well, the, the first thing is there's a similarity between what I was saying about what we need to do against the Michigan state Spartan team that is uh, you know, two or three times as important against Ohio state. And that is limiting the big plays from the Buckeyes. Now the Ohio state offense is the Michigan state offense on steroids, right? I mean, Michigan state has a very good running back Heisman candidate and two very good receivers, big play threats and a quarterback who's distributing the ball Ohio State has all of that, plus they have, you know, Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson on the outside, right? Um, they have four guys. I would say Ohio State does receivers that um, are are at the at a similar level to to what Michigan State has. So you have to limit the big plays now. Where I said against Michigan State, you have to eliminate them (laughs) to the best of your ability and and really try to drive that to zero. I think you're trying to slow down the big plays against Ohio State, but they're going to get them. They're going to get them. There are going to be big plays in that game. So the reason that Josh Gaddis was hired, even though Pep Hamilton had been reasonably successful on offense in 2018, is because the Wolverines got boat raced in Columbus in 2018. And once Ohio State started hitting a couple big plays, the offense couldn't click. And we were never going to, you know, using the boxing analogy, you know, body blow after body blow wasn't going to work once we were down two scores. And and we were helpless almost from the first quarter on in 2018. So the game plan from a very high level is – the offense has to be ready to try to go shot for shot with that offense. And they have to be prepared to, to go win a a high scoring, you know, they have to be on the right side of a 42, 39 game, right. Or a 45, 42 game where then what you could do, um, what you're looking for then is not necessarily, you know, holding that offense down but coming up with a key play and a key moment on defense, and and flipping the field one time, coming up with one real key turnover, right? Or, or or you know taking advantage, putting pressure on their offensive line, and and drawing a penalty, and and making that, and 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 maybe forcing Ohio State to punt three times in the second half, right? And it's going to be something like that. You're not going to stop them. You're not going to hold them under 30 points, right? So your offense has to be able to go shot for shot with them and keep it, um, you know, neck and neck from a scoring perspective. And then it's about getting that big tide turning play from your defense and, or from special teams, right? We've seen it in the past, right? That some of the most iconic moments in the rivalry came on, on special teams plays, you know, and, and, you know, pushed guys like Desmond Howard and, and Charles Woodson all the way to, you know, all the way to a Heisman performance. So, um, I mean, that's the game plan, is you have to limit big plays, right, make them execute the same women that we're talking about, make them execute over and over again, and then you have to be hyper, hyper efficient on offense and maximize all of your opportunities. Because, you know, despite some early season problems, you know, that offense is rolling. They're, they're mediocre on defense. You know, I think they're, they're not much better than Nebraska on defense. They're certainly not as good as Wisconsin on defense, uh, in Columbus. So Michigan can score points on that team, but they have to do it, right? And if they can get up in a lead in that game, similar to what they did in 2017, you know, I, I'm, I'm not so sure about the mental makeup of that Buckeye team. And from what I've seen, they don't respond very well to adversity, um, at least so far in this season. So if uh, if you can cash in and make some big plays early and uh, maybe cause their offense to stumble a little bit coming out of the blocks in Ann Arbor, then I, it would put a lot of pressure on those guys. You know, the, They have a lot of pressure on them because they don't want to be the first one to lose to Michigan in a long time. So if you get off to a good start the way Michigan has against the Buckeyes, then you really – you really put a, a, a whole atmosphere of pressure on those guys. So that's what it looks like, you know, but, but saying it and doing it are two very, very different things. And, you know, I it's not, not for me to say or do, but that's, if it was me, that's how I'd be looking at it is really limit their big plays, try to get off to a good start and make sure the offense is primed for a track meet um, if and when it becomes necessary.
0: You know, you talk about the pressure, on the players at Ohio State, my daughter is a uh, is in law school, and uh, at a law school in Ohio, and she mentioned to me that some of her classmates were distressed that they were worried that Ohio State was going to lose to Michigan for the first time since when they were in grade school. So, um, you know, there is always that pressure there, and you know, the, the thing that I would um, caution. Michigan fans you know Ohio State has lost once this year but one of the best Ohio State teams of recent memory the 2014 team lost during the regular season and and they you know pulled out another national championship so I don't think we you can't discount the Buckeyes and I think the the best thing that Michigan can do is keep winning keep building strength and Um, you know have a lot of different ways to attack them on offense and just keep the defense gaining strength and getting experience for those players so so um, again we want to thank everyone who sent questions for the podcast this was a uh, a maxi size podcast we wanted to get to everyone's questions because we really appreciate our audience and um, we're going to Head out with uh, a clip from Coach Harbaugh from uh, his press conference this week.
2: I strive to be at my best every single day, you know, no matter what the circumstances are. Um, you know, it's a I strive to attack each day with an enthusiasm unknown to mankind. It's a it's a good opportunity um, to you know spend spend some spend more time than I normally would, um, in a game week to, um, catch up and, uh, whether it's watching tape, evaluating guys, um, you know, I mean, there's a, there's the 22s and then there's the 23s. Um, so, uh, there's, there's always so much there. I mean, that could be, actually it is a full-time job for, uh, Know, a recruiting corner, but it's a you know, it's also one of the you know, darn near full time job for for me as well. But um yeah, and I mean it's getting ready for the, the future opponents also multitasking, I mean and nothing helps recruiting by the way, better than winning. So uh to keep a you know, a huge focus on, on that. Um, but yeah, get it get some get some more hours in today to be able to, to uh put concentration and focus on, on recruiting youngsters to the great state of Michigan and specifically the University of Michigan.
0: And that's going to do it for this edition of the Umgoblue.com podcast. This is Phil Callahan, along with
1: Clint Derringer.
0: Go Blue. Thank you for listening to the Umgoblue.com podcast. All rights reserved. Search for
1: umgoblue.com on iTunes. Go Blue.